Welcome back for part three of an extended presentation of Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History. Last time on Ribbons and Bows, we continued our look at World War II and met three more femmes of the fiddle, Guila Bustabo, Fredel Lack, and Francis Magnus. This time we wrap up with the stories of Madeline Carabo, Dorotha Powers, Jean Mitchell, Eudis Shapiro, Margaret Siddig, and Patricia Travers. Other musicians of lesser acclaim still deserve a nod, of course. First, another artist who was best known in the 1940s was Madeline Carabo from St. Louis, a student of Inesco, Mishikoff, Adolfo Betti, and Carl Friedberg, who had critically acclaimed performances in Carnegie Hall and Town Hall. She played with spirit and fiery passion. Her poetic way of playing brought so much delight to so many. The Chicago Tribune hailed her rendition of a Paganini concerto, suggesting she, like the composer, had made a secret pact with Satan. <laughs> Judith Shapiro was born in 1914 in Buffalo, New York, and died in 2007. She began playing at the age of five, learning from her father, and then she received formal training with Gustav Tinlo at the Eastman School of Music and Ephraim Zimbalist at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, and she grew into an internationally known violinist, chamber musician, and teacher at USC known for her big tone and grand style. In her solo career, which began at the age of 12, she drew raves from coast to coast. The New York Times noted her authority and tonal strength denoting mastery. The Los Angeles Times wrote of musicianly restraint, good taste, and understanding. In 1941, she played in studios in Hollywood for Paramount, United Artists, and RKO, and she did so for 23 years. She was the concertmaster for the RKO Orchestra, and this made her the first female concertmaster in a studio orchestra. Her appointment and her success with it created many more opportunities for the women musicians who followed. Margaret Sittig was born in San Francisco and played at Carnegie Hall. One critic found her playing extremely impressive, with a warm, rich tone. Another, in the New York Journal and American, loved the richness and variety of tone, and wrote that a warmth of feeling distinguished her playing. Calling her one of the most talented of women violinists, he wrote that she showed prime traits of musicianship, drawing a fine cantilena from the strings and investing the score with substantial value in expression and tonal color. Patricia Travers, born in Clifton, New Jersey in 1927, began playing violin at three and a half. She had her first public concert at age six at a summer chamber music festival in Falls Village, Connecticut. She studied under Jacques Gordon and Hans Letz, who were both well-known violinists and teachers. Travers performed with the Detroit Symphony on national radio when she was only 10 years old. Travers owned a 1733 Guarnerius, but that was not her only violin. From 1938 to 1954, she owned and played the 1732 Tom Taylor Stradivarius, a violin that was later owned by Joshua Bell. In 1941, Travers appeared in the film There's Magic in Music. She had a speaking role and also played Anton Rubinstein's Romance in E-flat. She was then in a cultural exchange program 
touring Germany after World War II. She lived until 2010. Of course the critics loved her, but it's a real accomplishment to garner acclaim from a fellow musician. So, when Dr. Artur Rodzinski, director of the New York Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra, called her one of the finest violinists I have ever presented with the Philharmonic Symphony Society, it was high praise indeed. We've introduced you to many names, and there are surely many others, all of them fine musicians, no doubt. We now turn to a few who left deep and lengthy legacies for us to explore, Beverly Somach and Carol Glenn. But first, let's talk for a moment about Yasha Heifetz. Of all the violinists of the day, male or female, Yasha Heifetz was clearly the violinist's violinist, a household name. He'd been born in Lithuania, where his father, Reuven, was a concertmaster at the Vilnius Orchestra and a violin teacher. His father, observing potential in his son, started him on violin before the age of three. Continuing in a grand lineage, Heifetz was the student of Malkin, who himself was a student of Auer, and he taught both male and female students. One of his students was Beverly Somach. Declared a child prodigy at age five, Beverly Somach began impressing audiences shortly thereafter. By the age of 14, she rivaled adult violinists. Brilliant intellectually, she graduated Phi Beta Kappa with a BA from Columbia University at age 19. Somach studied under the famed Heifetz and toured all over the world. Some of her many venues included Town Hall, Lincoln Center's Alice Tully Hall, Carnegie Hall, Hong Kong, Canada, Europe, and even also Woodstock. Her phrasing was lyrical, and she expressed a range of emotional feeling in her music. Noel Strauss, from the New York Times, was smitten with Somach's performance. He wrote, Blessed with such a rich temperament, imagination, unusual sensitivity, and technical proficiency, she invested her work with a depth of feeling, wealth of color, and dynamic variety. Her penetrating insight into the meaning of the music, subtle molding of phrase, and deft application of nuances and shading characterized all of her offering. Glenn Dillard Dunn, from the Washington Times-Herald, was equally delighted, saying that her art was a miracle, and wrote, Miracles, if they still happen, occur most frequently in the art of music. As when 14-year-old Beverly Somach played violin with a serene sense of beauty and a persuasive musical address, it seemed unbelievable. Her art is a challenge to every adult. The consensus was that her talent was remarkable for someone so young. The New York Herald Tribune wrote, Increasing a promising impression made in a previous appearance 13 months ago, Beverly Somach gave her second New York recital last night in Town Hall and displayed a talent that was remarkable for a violinist of 13 or 14 years. This was apparent not only in her technical accomplishments, but in her interpretive musicianship. That was of a discerning young artist rather than of a gifted child. Her repertoire included the Bach Chaconne, Handel's Sonata No. 4 in D major, Mio's Sonata No. 2, and Viotin's Concerto No. 4 in D minor. Francis Perkins from the New York Herald Tribune remarked, In the Bach Chaconne, the tone became outspoken and gave an impression of diversity of colors, 
adaptability to stylistic and expressive performance. It was particularly notable from an interpretive point of view with unusual understanding of style. Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History, a presentation of Elfenworks Productions beyond film and music, will return after this brief message. This is Mitchell Sardu Klein, conductor of the Peninsula Symphony, where women have always been a part of our history, from our first performance in 1948, enriching and engaging our community with inspiring, innovative, affordable, high-quality musical performance, right up to our current focus on music by living female composers, as well as our efforts through our Bridges to Music outreach and education programs. Let's inspire the next generation together through music. Check us out at PeninsulaSymphony.org. Now we return to Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History. The charming musicality of Carol Glenn brought tears of joy to many music lovers. She was born in Richmond, Virginia, and began studying violin at the age of four. She studied under a number of important teachers, the first being Felice de Horvath in South Carolina. She also studied at Juilliard under Edward Detier. In 1938, she won the Nomberg Violin Competition. And in 1943, she married pianist Eugene Liszt. When she performed with her husband, she received raves, such as, The impact of two such vivid personalities was a new sensation and youthful and fresh and dedicated to their art. In a rare and glowing comparison, their recording of the Frank Sonata was held up as equal to the recording by Heifetz and Rubinstein, according to the Social Democraten. Glenn was also a wonderful teacher. She taught students at North Texas State University, the Eastman School of Music, the Manhattan School of Music, Queens College, Temple University, and the National Music Camp in Interlochen, Michigan. Glenn's virtuosity, musicality, brilliant playing, and expressive tone won over all of her audiences everywhere she performed. Hailed by Washington, D.C.'s Daily News, one of America's most important artistic assets, with what the Herald Tribune called impressive maturity and understanding, and what the World Telegram called ingenious and charming of presence, she was also well-known abroad which was noted by La Voce Republicana. Without fanfare, and though only 23 years old, she's already obtained the recognition of the critics of Europe and America. The Toronto Globe and Mail wrote, the audience could barely wait until she had finished to give vent to its own tense feelings that her playing had aroused. A critic raved, acclaim burst from an audience held spellbound during the performance. Another wrote, She's built up tension until she dominated the breathing of her magnetized audience. Another summed it up thusly. Glenn charmed the ears right off her listeners. We're fortunate because her recordings survive her, and the reviews shed light on what made her performances so delightful. We know from the St. Louis Star-Times that she played the Cacciatorian Concerto with astonishing dexterity and consistent purity of tone. We learn from one extensive New York Times review that she charmed the audience with the Prokofiev Sonata for Violin Solo, Opus 115, and then offered up a Strauss Sonata, followed by Copland and Mio. Her Strauss was superb, according to the critics, a big-scale conception of the work done with superb impetus and transcendent virtuosity. 
Her playing had breadth and maturity. The opening movement was performed with special brilliance. At its end, the audience burst into spontaneous applause. Of course, technically, applause is not to be offered in the middle of a sonata. But she must have enjoyed the outburst anyway. So, what of the outliers? What of those who were just showing up in 1949 and 1950? Can we leave without a nod to them? Surely not. The lovely Jean Mitchell, who was born in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1924, died in 1994 and graduated from Barnard College. She started off playing violin in the New York City Symphony for two years and then began a solo career in 1947. Mitchell played all over the U.S. and abroad between 1947 and 1957. She played six solo recitals in Carnegie Hall. She was known for her sensitive musicianship and lovely tone that went along well with her pretty face and sometimes newspapers record a lavender party dress. The New York Times called her a musician of promise in 1947. The Herald Tribune, a violinist of consequence from whom much may be expected. Predicting a truly important place among soloists will presently be her due. Later, she would go on to marry a music critic, Louis Biancoli, and stop performing to stay home with her daughters and teach violin. She returned later in life as a soloist and concertmaster with the Ridgefield Symphony in Connecticut. Here to talk about Jean Mitchell is her daughter, Amy Biancoli, journalist and author of Fritz Chrysler, Love's Sorrow, Love's Joy. So my mother, Jean Mitchell, was a very funny woman. She was a blunt talker. She told a lot of stories about being a woman and a soloist, uh, and also quite a beautiful woman. She was this blonde, blue-eyed stunner, and she spoke with great amusement and annoyance of all of the male critics, my father included, uh, my father being Louis Biancoli, who could not write a review without also mentioning that, oh, she was quite a beauty. <laughs> It was just part of her life as a concertizing female soloist that she had to deal with this attitude all the time. Despite that, she had quite a global career. Uh, she toured internationally. She soloed with the Philly multiple times under Eugene Ormandy's baton. Became quite close with Ormandy. He was one of her champions. So it, it made some sense when my mother wanted to get back to concertizing. She had stepped aside only to have kids and she never thought it was permanent. So she went to her, her champion, um, Eugene Ormandy, and she said, okay, I think I'm ready to get back. Uh, do you think I could play with the Philly again? And he said, no. The explanation he gave was that after she had gone off to have her babies, another female soloist had taken her place. And there was only room for one on the global concert stage. There was only room for one female violinist. And uh, she had given up her spot. That was the end of her global career right there. She never became bitter. She never stopped playing. She simply started playing for smaller audiences. She kept growing as an artist. She had always been a performer of great power and poetry. And both the power and the poetry grew and her interpretations of, of Bach and Beethoven and Chrysler, whom she loved, just, they just continued. She kept 
being the great artist she was. It's just that the latter part of her life, very few people heard her. The wonderful Canadian violinist Betty Jean Hagen was born in Edmonton, Canada. She began playing violin at age seven with Alexander Nichol and then went on to study under Ludwig Becker at the Chicago Conservatory and with Galamian at Juilliard. In the early 1940s, she was in the Edmonton Philharmonic. She moved to Calgary in 1946, where she studied under Clayton Hare and played in the Calgary Symphony Orchestra, and then went on to study at the Royal Conservatory of Music with Geza de Kretz. The Winnipeg Free Press loved her for the kind of tone that Fritz Kreisler had produced 15 or 20 years prior, the musical intelligence of the elect. The London Times praised her flawless execution. The New York Times called her an artist of achieved stature and excitingly distinctive personality. 1950 is our cutoff, the line in the sand we have drawn. And this was the year Hagen won the Nomburg Award. Her debut was later that year at Town Hall in New York. She played in France, Holland, Britain, and Switzerland, and was a member of the Columbia Canadian Trio, who toured Ontario, Quebec, and the United States. Like many of our wonderful musical artists, she too had a long, rich life that extended much beyond 1950. She also taught private lessons in New York and was concertmaster for the Westchester Symphony Orchestra, Orange County Chamber Orchestra, and the Woodstock Chamber Orchestra. She became a professor of violin at Vassar College and founded the Tourmaline String Quartet. Here we are at 1950, but our story doesn't end here. It just changes focus from the chronological to other fascinating connections. That's all for now. Tune in next time when Ribbons and Bows takes a look at the international women on the American violin scene. Until then, keep a song in your heart and an extra set of strings. Spread hope and live life on the upbow. This episode features excerpts from works in the public domain and copyrighted recordings of Maud Powell, Beverly Somak, Eugene List, and Carol Glenn that were used with permission from the copyright holders. For details including full legal notice, visit elfinworksproductions.com. Ribbons and Bows, American Women in Violin History has been a presentation of Elfinworks Productions, Beyond Film and Music. Writer-producer-director Lauren Spieth, Research and assistant producer Devin Philo. Technical consultant Christopher Spieth. Narrated by Lauren Spieth. Audio engineer Josh Workman. Learn about all our products, including this one, available as an audiobook release, and find more information and detailed histories online now at www.elfenworksproductions.com. We thank you for your patronage and partnership as we strive to tell the stories that matter. Copyright 2018, Elfenworks Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.